Hi, this is Chris Westfall, and this is the Financial Executive Podcast. Hi, this is Chris Westfall. Before we get started with our conversation, I wanted to tell you about FEI's current financial reporting issues conference taking place at the New York Marriott Marquis on November 16th and 17th. CFRI is the only conference created by preparers for preparers that includes representatives from the SEC, FASB, and the PCAOB. Podcast listeners interested in attending CFRI can use the discount code DAILY, D-A-I-L-Y, when registering for a special discount, and the URL for that discount is at cfri.financialexecutives.org. One of the keynote speakers at this year's CFRI conference is John Stark, president of John Reed Stark Consulting. John is a former founding chief internet enforcement officer at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. He has a two-decade career in cybersecurity issues, and I think he'll be surprised by some of his recommendations for financial executives facing a data breach or other cyber incidents. So, John, you know, just given what everybody's going through, I know there's been a lot of cybersecurity issues in the news lately. I think the latest is T-Mobile and and um, Experian. Yeah, right. And a lot of a lot of break-ins going on. So you know, this seems to be at the top of everybody's mind. So if I'm a CFO, if I'm a financial executive. And then in the middle of the night, I get a call, uh, you know, that there's been a security breach. What's the first thing you do? What's what's the first thing that should come at the top of your mind? Well, you know, there's lots of things that are going to come to your mind when you get that news. And it's inevitable that you will be receiving that call. If it so happens that, you know, you're in the financial side of a firm and you receive the call, the first thing you're going to do is refer to your general counsel Hmm. or your outside counsel. Hmm. And you need special counsel trained in data breach. Okay, so why am I saying that? Because, you know, I think the instinct would be to call your CIO or call your um, your COO or call your CISO or some other um, uh, other initial. Well, it's been my experience that the counsel, the lawyer, has really become the quarterback of data breach response. Hmm. And some companies really don't handle that properly. Um, I think it starts off in too many fragments. Well, why the lawyer? First, the, the work that you do on an incident response is going to be heavily litigated later on in many different ways. There'll be all sorts of potential civil liabilities, regulatory liabilities, maybe criminal liabilities. Maybe your vendors will be suing you, your customers will be suing you, your employees will be suing you, You may your shareholders may be suing you. There is so much litigation that is likely to ensue and law enforcement interests and investigations that uh, I recommend that the the general counsel handle that and and engage the incident response uh, firm that you ultimately hire, an outside forensics firm, or an internal team directly reporting to that general counsel so that everything you do, at least initially, is cloaked with the attorney-client privilege. Hmm. Um, The the data breaches, it's it's incredible the the competing interests that can initially arise. The first thing to understand is that there's no other crime like data breaches that really vilifies the victim as much. And I was both uh, an enforcement lawyer at the SEC. I served as a special assistant United States attorney uh, in the District of Columbia. I taught at the FBI Academy in Quantico. I have lots of experience with this. And most of the time, the victim is someone who you feel sorry for and want to help. (laughs) Well, that doesn't happen in a data breach. You know, you're essentially the subject of a terrorist attack. 
and you are vilified by everyone and everybody thinks for whatever reason that you left a door unlocked somewhere and it's your fault and that's usually not true i i mean i i have um an eight-year-old daughter and send her to school every day is it her fault if she she catches a cold you know of (laughs) course not the same thing goes for data breaches so but unfortunately in the world of data breach you are immediately subjected to all sorts of vilification and i don't know if that's going to change but you certainly should be treated more like a victim but you're not Hmm. ironically the only one that really treats you like the victim is the fbi or the air force or the law enforcement agency charged with the investigation on the federal level and they might come to your company's headquarters the next day and they might they're going to try to catch the bad guy and they're going to say we want images of all the infected machines we want uh, lists and copies of all the the indicators of compromise any files that indicate compromise and we want to attach an appliance to your network so we can catch this intruder uh, or these intruders when they're in the act right and those are all extraordinarily difficult and challenging legal questions. You know, can you provide your customers' data to law enforcement? Can you provide raw images of data, um, which includes slack space and unallocated space that could have all sorts of of, um, important private, confidential, non-public information? Hmm. Um, So you have legal issues there. Then the next set of calls you're going to get are from one or several of the 47 different states that have their own different statutory regimes for privacy. I have to to let you know right now you're freaking everybody. (laughs) Your first first calls uh, from a lawyer and the second calls from a regular is like the worst thing a financial executive would want to think about. But uh, I think it's an important point. Yeah. And it only gets worse. You know, it just keeps getting worse, unfortunately. Um, So I I do believe that you've got to battle those competing interests and every one of them is rife with very, very intense legal issues. So mm-hmm. all of the work streams and workflow that evolve out of a data breach, you should be very, very careful um, and proceed with counsel. Right. I mean, isn't that sort of, I guess the question is, why is it that way? I mean, why is it that, you know, the first thing you have to think about, the first thing you have to do is call your lawyer, right? And and um, if, if you're a CFO or financial executive, you're thinking about, you know, protecting your staff, protecting your company, protecting your customers. Um, why is it that the first instinct and the first real call you should make is, is an attorney? Well, you know, as I said, if you look at the sort of every part of the workflow in the aftermath of a data breach, and you never read about the workflow, you always read about there was a data breach and X number of records were compromised and the company is working with uh, with uh, their internal IT staff and they're working very hard to contain the threat. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of different specific things that happen. The first thing that happens is you're going to have to preserve all the workstations and servers and various endpoints to make sure that that data and th- that information is not destroyed somehow because you need it as part of your investigation, mm-hmm. which is often an exhaustive exercise for many companies who haven't gone through the appropriate data mapping or don't have the appropriate technologies in place to help them with that preservation. Then there's the digital forensic analysis, which is kind of like a lather, rinse, and repeat type of of exercise because you will look at the 
the forensic results of your analysis of the various uh, hard drives that you may have collected in servers, find the indicators of compromise, and each time you find some some other piece of some other indicator of compromise, you're going to scan your systems and look for that, and then grab those systems as well and preserve those systems. So again, you have this sort of lather, rinse, repeat exercise that starts. Right. Then you're going to be looking at all the logging that whatever sort of um, logging retention you have at your company. It might be very extensive and neatly organized, organized, or it might be very fragmented. But that's essentially going to tell you about the comings and goings on your networks, and you're going to need that. Then you're going to have to do something called malware reverse engineering. And that's very complex, because you're essentially taking malware and trying to figure out or this indicator of compromise and trying to figure out what the attacker did. And malware is a funny word because I, I think it's often misunderstood. Malware, if someone breaks into your house and uses a screwdriver to jam open the door and leaves that screwdriver behind, that was a tool that the person used in the crime. But otherwise, it has a fairly innocuous and benign use. It's a screwdriver. But it's sitting around and it's, a, you know, when I'm doing a trial, it's the major piece of evidence against the burglar. Well, the same is true for malware. There can be perfectly legitimate pieces of software that in the right context can have um, an attack edge to them. Like, for instance, RAR files are large container files in which you move large pieces of data. And lots of companies use RAR files to move data. Mm -hmm. But attackers also use RAR files. So if you see big RAR files coming in to somebody's user station whose uh, job has nothing to do with moving data, Data, you might see that as suspicious, and that's part of your malware reverse engineering. Um, and that's also extremely complex. And you know, there's no school for it. There's no, it, it, there's no, um, there's not like a school of journalism for like there. Are, there's no school of malware reverse engineering. Right. Most of the people who know how to do it, maybe they're programmers or network engineers who have sort of taken on this skill. Maybe they're self-taught. So what I try to say is, there's very few people who know how to do that. So you have um, that can be very expensive. And then the surveillance, you know, you're trying to contain whatever um, attack there is, and you're going to probably put in all sorts of new software. And then uh, the exfiltration analysis, hmm. which is like a giant e-discovery exercise, because if all of these systems have been compromised, whether they've been targeted, accessed, or whether there's been exfiltration, you then need to report to these state regulators if any records of people, personally, they call it personal identifying information, right, so right. Any per, or if it's medical, you know, personal health information. If any of that, um, if there's been any impact on that, you have regulatory responsibilities to notify those people and you're going to want to give them credit monitoring and things like that. Um, so that analysis is not as easy as just running search terms on data because it might, that the PII might be contained in very large uh, structured data sets like a SQL database that mm -hmm. you use for payroll, for instance. So you're going to be doing that. Then you're going to also have to do physical security evaluation. You're going to have to make sure because it, it, physical security is now inexorably linked to uh, cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Given all the technology, the video cameras and key cards and all the different technologies 
technologies that people use for security, that's going to need an evaluation. The regulatory compliance, the consumer notification monitoring services, the legal costs, the law enforcement liaison. The FBI is going to want meetings and briefings. And then the biggest, the biggest thing that I see in these situations, the largest and most important workflow, although they're all pretty important, are the briefings of your various constituencies. Your right. customers want briefings. Your vendors want briefings. Your partners want briefings. Your board wants briefings. Your shareholders want briefings. Your employees want briefings. So all of those people, and, and, and there might be 30 customers that, that have read about the data breach and want to make sure things are okay. They have fiduciary obligations themselves to their own shareholders and customers. So they might, uh, they all need briefings. And if you think about that, you know, you just can't suddenly start telling everybody everything. You have to make sure that message is modulated properly, that it's accurate, and right. that you're being very careful and meticulous. And, you know, lawyers are generally the types of people who know how to do that uh, under the privilege. Because, again, one mistake in any of those communications or any of these work streams, and your, uh, your company could go bankrupt. Well, that, you know, and I've seen that. Yeah, and that's a question because what you're talking about here, if I understand it, is like, you know, the CFO or the financial executive is sort of touching everything, and and um, it has to worry about all aspects of this after a cybersecurity breach or a security breach. Um, how, I mean, from your experience, when there's been a breach, how do you manage the breach and run a business at the same time? Uh, I, I, you know. I, how do you juggle those two things? It's a tremendous challenge. A data breach causes extraordinary economic stress on a firm because every one of those work streams have costs associated with them, and some of them may be insured, some of them maybe not. I, and we can talk about insurance later if you like. Right. But um, so it's a, and then the just the psychological management drag. Hmm. It, I've been on data breach responses where um, every night the briefings are from four o'clock to eight o'clock seven days a week for wow. two months straight. Mm -hmm. And because you've got so many different teams working and so much to do, and you can imagine not just the cost of those calls, but just the drag on management. And then Congress calls. Every day some new constituency pops up right. and says they want a briefing. Congress is suddenly concerned because you have government contracts. I, I practice a lot in D.C., and a lot of my clients have government contracts, so that pops up. Um, you know, it, it's an extraordinary drag. I, I think I can give you some advice as to how to preempt some of that from yeah, a absolutely, because, perspective. Yeah, because, I mean, that's a, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, we've been talking about what to do after, or the, everything you have to worry about after, but is there a way to put a process in place where you can actually respond to it with, while mitigating some of the risk? I think so. I mean, well, first of all, there needs to be a dramatic paradigm shift at most companies today. Mm -hmm. uh, and I see this over and over again. Most companies are very fixated on sort of customary protections of signature detection, you know, antivirus and firewalls. Um, those people, those companies are just as misguided as parents trying to prevent their kids from catching colds by relying on, you know, hand washing and wearing multiple clothing layers. Right. It, it's inevitable. So the smarter method for combating data breaches, and, and this goes for colds as well, is to focus your efforts and preparation on how to contain, how to treat, how to get rid of the problem as fast and as painlessly as possible. Um, and this is a, a better realism than the sort of clinging to the fantasy of ironclad 
cloud security. And I think that's this new paradigm of cybersecurity where um, technological infrastructure has expanded dramatically, right? Data right. points reside on multiple platforms, uh, employee devices, vendor networks, the cloud. Um, and in the reality for me, and I think for most people, where data breaches don't define companies. That's the paradigm. It's how they respond to them that does. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, this doesn't mean traditional cybersecurity measures like periodic risk assessments, antivirus, software patching, encryption, um, you know, a, a, a manifold breach response plan. Those are all very important cybersecurity measures. But I, I think your my guess is your audience already knows that. Right, right. So what, what don't they know? Um, I, I have three things that I would cover in that, and I, I've been really doing some hard thinking about this. Okay. The first is um, what are called EDR tools. Endpoint, it's called Endpoint Detection and Response. And mm -hmm. if you've never heard of it, it's because they've really only been around for two or three years. Um, and these are typically installed within an entire network uh, attack vector, and that's domain controllers, database servers, workstations. It, it, it eventually becomes the cornerstone of the security stack at a company, and it provides kind of real-time intelligence feeding hmm. of the information that you need. For instance, remember I talked about the, the preservation. Right. Um, and the file system forensics and the logging uh, analysis and the, of all that data. If you put put in like a very good EDR tool, you the EDR tool aggregates and collects that all along, sort of in metadata form. Mm -hmm. And by providing kind of this proactive, continuous monitoring and recording of all the activities and endpoints and servers, the EDR tools reduce the need for sort sort of the after the fact data collections and the dwell time of investigations. And and they can look for anything. You know, they can look for any sort of anomalies, anything that that might resemble any any form of data breach or internal threat from an internal employee. Right. And will also help you with the regulatory and the law enforcement response while also accelerating the identification of the root causes and the attack vectors of the breaches. And they also provide a richer depth of behavior-based anomaly recognition. It's sort of better visibility into the threats and varieties. Um, it's it's almost like uh, if you if you have security already and you just put in really good video cameras that are twenty four seven. You know, think about the video cameras like in a Seven Eleven, right? They're right. just sort of there in case there's a crime, and then you sort of look at them and they're this grainy, you know, not the best quality, probably right. not that much money put into them. Then think about the videos that you probably have in a casino, yeah, that are looking for card counters and all sorts of other things. Mm. Um, that's really what an EDR tool can be. Yesterday, I had a, a terrific conversation for an hour with the founder of, of a company called Carbon Black. And I, I don't have any affiliation with Carbon Black. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't get paid by anybody. Right, right. But it's, it's an example of a of a phenomenal EDR tool. And it, it's, it's just amazing to me how... Um, his name is Ben Johnson. And it's just amazing to me that companies have not picked up on, on setting up an EDR uh, like Carbon Black at mm -hmm. their company. And I think I, Carbon Black maybe has eight or 900 companies now, and they can handle a, up to 50,000 user stations. Um, I, and I think they two years ago, they had 20 clients. So I would expect that this is going to become a sort of a corporate standard, and nobody seems to realize that. 
but they will soon enough because it just reduces expense dramatically, collects the data, and it's a real kind of preemptive strike. So that's that's sort of number one is for CFOs to talk and look into EDRs. There are lots right. of other there. I think there are about twelve or fourteen companies that do hmm. it now, and some of the bigger companies are starting to do it. Right. You know, I mentioned Carbon Black, but there are others too. But um, I just uh, happen to be particularly impressed with that one, and I've used it with <laughs> clients. And as I said, nobody's paying me a nickel for saying so. Yeah. Um, the second item would be approaching cyber insurance in a much more in a in a very untraditional way. Uh, way it's I call it a kind of a reverse gap analysis, mm-hmm. where you take the the workflow that I just described to you that happens at your company, and if your company has credit card data, there's a, there are workflows that might uh, relate to what are called PCI standards. Right. Um, and other things. If your company doesn't handle credit card data, you might not have that workflow. But to look at all those work streams and then sit down and say, okay, which one of these do we want to insure for? You know, which one of these will, which one of these will trigger coverage, which will be outside of coverage, and which might be uninsurable. Mm-hmm. And you know, so you look at each one of those things. And this, I, I, I got to tell you, because this is one of the most challenging areas. So the CFO is probably best suited for this within a company because I'll get on the phone and uh, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. Um, I'll be talking to an insurance company, um, say that, you know, maybe the company has general liability insurance, property insurance, maybe they even have cyber insurance and we will be reporting to the insurance adjuster, just like, you know, your house gets burned down. Right. Someone from, you know, some insurance company comes over and, and, and helps you because you've just had a terrible fire. <laughs> um, the, the same is not really true with cyber insurance. A lot of these calls, I get on the calls with the adjuster. Adjuster, and they've got litigation counsel on the phone with them. Wow. Poised and ready. And they send over a 15 page document request of every document relating to the breach, every document relating to cybersecurity, every uh, person assigned. You know, just I've looked at some of these these requests and I turn to the client, I go, you know, it's going to cost you a couple hundred thousand just to respond to this document request. Right, and this right. kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier that you really can find yourself, you know, you don't necessarily feel like your insurer is there to help you. Right. So you need to get ahead of that and talk to your insurer and your broker and make sure, for example, when I do certain work at a company, I might, um, I, I might label what I'm doing in terms of uh, replacing 45,000 uh, 45, workstations. That's, mm-hmm. that's probably too high. So, you know, say I'm, I'm swapping out 10,000 laptops. Right. Something like that. You're re-imaging them. And, some, and I might call that remediation, which is a huge part of, a, a huge part of the workflow of any, of any attack. And it usually starts right away. You know, you change passwords, you, you uh, reduce the number of administrative rights. There's a lot of basic things you do at the beginning of a data breach response. Right. And then there's some, you know, you may decide to, to put in something like carbon black at the time of the response. Um, and if you put in carbon black, is that remediation or not? I have no idea, Hmm. but the insurer is going to say, you know, nine times out of 10, sorry, that's not, and it's not covered. So you need to really be documenting for your insurance company and you need to know beforehand what it's going to be like. I mean, for example, um, when, if, if something were to happen to my house and I had to recreate 
all the, the any valuable things that I have here? Do I have a nice, neat, organized list somewhere, or is it just going to have to be from my memory? Or do I have you know a, a, a videotape of of um, any jewelry of my wife's, you know, so that and, and receipts, or, right. you know? So the documentation is going to be critical. So that's number two: is this idea of cyber insurance and looking at it the way, like I say, a reverse gap analysis, so that you're kind of thinking, okay, what's covered, what's not covered and and what sort of exposure do I have right and then finally and this might not be in the uh, financial purview is that what I always find amazing is I arrive on site to respond to a data breach and the same people who were reporting the breach are responsible for the company's cybersecurity the fortification of mm-hmm. the company so it's only human nature to, to sort of you're reporting up the chain, you're talking about this data breach, and, and you know every other word out of your mouth is is only natural. It's going to be sort of designed to say you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, and yeah. you know so how do you solve that? Well, you've got to solve that, and one way to do it is to take your incident response personnel, whether they're at an outside firm or inside firm, and have them like a sort of an internal SWAT team that reports only to the GEC, to mm-hmm. the general counsel. And I think um, that sort of independence, I rarely see that. So I think yeah. if, if you moved your incident response so that they were more independent and more you know, naturally impartial, and you in- implemented an EDR, and you worked around your cyber insurance as best you can. You know, I think those are sort of the less traditional um, preemptive strikes as opposed to focusing on all the firewalls and encryption, which are all important. And, you know, I don't want to lessen their importance, but I do think the EDR is going to take the place of uh, the antivirus very shortly as sort of the cornerstone of of protection because, again, it's all about how you respond and because the the catching the cold is inevitable. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you're talking about um, whether it's uh, EDRs replacing antivirus um, whether you're talking about, you know, changing sort of uh, the reporting mechanisms, uh, you know, up to the general counsel, if, if uh, there is an incident, um, you're talking about, um, you know, highly, um, very pricey uh, cyber insurance policies that don't, there's no guarantee of a payoff if, if, if an incident does happen. At the end of the day, you know, for uh for a CFO or financial executive, you have to sort of prove the ROI of something. And so how do you prove the ROI on an investment in, uh, you know, preventing a, cy- a cyber breach? Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> I, I think that that is a great question. I think that's probably going to be the, 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 the most significant challenge for the CFO because mm-hmm. it's very tough to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, let me tell you, entire companies are at risk right. um, if, I, if incident response is not handled well because there's no way to stop the data breach. Um, you know, there, there, I've, I've seen all sorts of statistics as to the average cost of the data breach. I, I, don't, I really don't think um, there's any way to quantify that too because you know, a company can have a very small data breach involving very small numbers of, of records and involving a very minor break-in and the company can completely go under because of that. Right, right. Because of the regulatory scrutiny. And, and you know, you just have, have it, it, 
you, you can't really even break it down by industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that credit card theft is probably the least of my worries right now, although there's just always huge publicity about it. Because number one, you know, if your credit card gets stolen and compromised, we've all grown fairly accustomed to just getting a new number. Right, right. And you never have it. You never, of course, your credit card, your, your credit rating could be impacted, but you never hear of anyone saying, I had to pay. Right, you know, maybe right. it happens occasionally, but if you've got an Amex or a Visa or MasterCard or something, you, know, you say, "Look, I didn't authorize that." Right, and um, I, I didn't. When I was at the SEC, I was in charge of internet enforcement for um, eleven years. I was the founder and chief of the Office of Internet Enforcement, and I never heard anybody with that problem. And also, you look at Apple Pay, where the credit card number doesn't really reside with the company anymore. So I think things are getting easier. And also you look at the instant notifications you can set up with your Amex or whatever so that you get instant notifications of large purchases or any purchases. So you can kind of stay on top of it and you can also access your account. So I look at credit card theft, you know, I I might be alone here, but I, I don't see that as the biggest threat. But and, and and you could see that Target was a, sort of a wake-up call in that right, area, even right. though there were many other breaches beforehand. But then you move over to you know, what happened to Sony or the recent uh, cases brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Sony, for instance, you know, they might not have ever thought, gee, if our emails get out, it could completely destroy our company or right. really hurt us. Right. But that's what happened. It was just their email. It wasn't really even intellectual property, traditional notion of an intellectual property, like a formula or a design scheme or something like that. It was just email communications. And then you look at the inside information. I call it outsider trading because it's <laughs> somebody from the outside just breaking into a company using malware, stealing information and trading on it. And the SEC just broke a giant case in this area and I, I don't see that going away at all because right. most of it is orchestrated from offshore and then you look at, at Ashley Madison you know that they're like many of my clients who would say why should I put in an EDR why should I uh, care that much about this nobody's going to breach me I don't have anything important well you know, right, right. Ashton obviously had a lot of important data, but in a different sense. So I think it's, um, again, I think the best thing would be for the the, the the CFO to be part of of taking this taking dealing with the reality that the incident response is what matters and the cybersecurity is important but shift away from that paradigm and you're doing the best you can you can you can it, it, the bottom line is you can maybe get some experts to sort of help you through it right I don't know if any metric exists that will say and and I think this is a huge problem Chris because I'll talk to people sometimes and they'll say John you know you're ideas are great and we really want to do all of it but it's just not in our budgetary cycle right now we'll put it in for next year yeah and that's the kiss of death i always think because if your if your company is not flexible in the area of information technology and doesn't have some sort of reserve put aside or some some sort of flexibility inherent in the procurement process then you're really going to have a problem because you need to act nimbly and quickly in these situations and i think um from a budgeting perspective, you do have people, uh, companies who just say, you know, we just don't have that in the budget. We have lots of other right. priorities and we're just not going to do it. And, um, you know, my feeling, especially, as I said, when it comes to EDRs is uh, it's inevitable. You might as well do it now 
and um, set it up so that you can your response will be so enhanced. And it will. The one thing I will tell you is I have to brief people like um, you know like law enforcement regulators, constituencies like shareholders and customers. And when you talk to them about the type of response that you do, and and the the and how organized and effective you are, and how you're using the latest technologies, you do get sort of a collective sigh of relief. Because right. I think we're beyond the past where a customer, although I've still I've seen this, where a customer experiences a, a, a there's a data breach and the customer just says, "Oh, there's been a data breach here. I quit. I'm going somewhere else." You know, right. I mean, I think we're beyond that. You know, I, I've studied carefully the responses of stock prices to data breaches, and you know, because the SEC might say those are material incidents and require right, right. disclosure to your shareholders. I I don't know if I feel that way because I don't see them quantitatively. This impacting it might affect the stock price for a week or for a day at most. Right, you know, targets right. did, but that that was a, a bit of an aberration. But they generally don't impact the stock price. And more importantly, data breaches happen a hundred thousand times a day, or maybe more. So how can you say that that's material when everybody knows they're happening all the time? Well, let me ask you this question, uh, and this will be my final question. I'm going to take much time, but mm-hmm. um, so in those incidents is where the where the breach happened, and then the um, and the company didn't respond in a correct way and actually failed. I mean, I don't know if there's any you can think of any examples of that. Sure, I can. But, but so, what's the difference between the way a company A responds and they survive, and company B responds and they fail? What's what's what are the decisions that they make that cause them that that it spirals out of control? Oh, that's a great question, too. Great question. Um, you know, I think the key to incident response is um, making sure you have an independent, truth-seeking, uh, whether it be a forensics outside firm or however, you need an independent, just like any other internal investigation. It's an internal investigation, right? There's been a crime at your company. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You hire someone to investigate. Well, they need to be independent. They need to be just there to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's number one. So you need independence. Number two is you need patience. Now, everybody wants to know the answer sooner than later. Whose data was compromised? How right. much was compromised? But you you need to, essentially, your, your initial disclosure is going to be, we hired X number of people to help us. We're putting in all sorts of containment measures. We're taking all sorts of remedial action and we'll keep you apprised, but we're not making any conclusions yet Hmm. because that's how everybody gets burned. You know, whenever I see a CEO on the the day after a breach is announced on the news, uh, citing the number of records, I'm thinking this CEO's days are numbered (laughs) and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. You know, I, when I was chief of the office of internet enforcement at the SEC, um, I was very tempted when we would have these these uh, big uh, you know intrusion cases and big hacking cases to when we had a break to run up to the director and tell the director hey you know we've made a big break here things right. are amazing we found this we found that but I learned pretty quickly that if I did that the next day I'd be up there saying guess what I was wrong yesterday right right it turns out that this happened so you know I guess by experience, I realized it's best to be very, very, you know, have patience until the facts are developed. So mm-hmm. independence, patience. And then finally is transparency and candor and thoughtfulness and deliberation about how you communicate these issues. You know, it's very, it's a, it's a very sensitive area for people. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and the media will hype it up even worse and can get people into a state where they're very upset. And I have found that when the company deals directly, and it, it, it helps a lot if you have an independent neutral. Right doing those presentations. So I'm, when I usually get up and do a presentation to a, a customer or, or a board or, or a, a partner or a vendor or whomever, I always say, look, I, I'm just here to tell you what happened. I have no, hmm. you know, I get paid either way. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that's always a, a very nice approach and to do that as quickly as you can. And, you know, just to ha- if you have very professional people who's, who will, who are convinced, who are convincing in the sense that, Hey, this takes time. You know, I, I, the typical data breach investigation that I'm on will take, you know, four to six to eight weeks right. before I would feel comfortable enough to start um, drawing some conclusions. And, um, you know, most people don't have the patience for that, but you just have to make them have the patience by being transparent and thoughtful. And you see some breaches, you have to handle, you have to handle credit monitoring and uh, notifications very well, you know, have an 800 number, mm-hmm. have, um, have all sorts of, do it very well. I, I, I mean, I will say, again, I, I, I don't get, um, any compensation, but um, I I have worked with Kroll um, on their credit monitoring and their um, uh, notification, and they're very good at that. You know, you, yeah. you want to have somebody who's good at that because if they're bad at that, you're going to have a problem because what's going to happen is, you know, the people are going to start complaining, and then you're going to have these these terrible stories seeping out. So you want to make sure that you have a good face on the on the whole issue and that you're handling it responsibly and um, it's very hard to plan for it because it's such a crisis. Right. Um, but, you know, good good credit monitoring and notification planning, you know, very good forensic work by reputable people, um, independence, neutrality, impartiality, the kind of things that most people had been through. If the CFO has ever had anybody stealing from the company, you know, it's the same real sure, the same approach, yeah. you know, getting responsible people to handle things carefully. Great, John. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Okay. Take care. Thank you, Chris. All right.